You're tuned in to Evolve, a series dedicated to the evolution of technology, society, and business. Host Aaron Spinley and his extraordinary international guests bring you front row seats to digital Darwinism, get you a backstage pass to the experience economy, and take you to the VIP after party with the rock stars of growth strategy. Let's get into the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. This is the premiere of Evolve. Now, as befitting a premiere, today I have an absolute rock star for you. I've known Joe Pine's work for a long time, but I haven't known Joe himself for that long, so I was so excited when I reached out to him last year and I asked him to do this premiere with me, and he said yes without just a moment of hesitation. In the mid-90s, Joe, together with his business partner, Jim Gilmore, discovered what we now know as the experience economy. They were researching and writing, and in 1998, together, they coined the term the experience economy in the Harvard Business Review, and a year later, released their seminal work, a book of the same title. Joe serves on seven different learning institutions in the US and in Europe. He's on two different editorial groups and strategy boards. And he's the co-founder of the European Center of the Experience Economy. Friends, there's simply no one with more authority on the subject and the DNA of the experience economy. Well, hey, Joe, and welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on, and uh, particularly a real privilege to have you headline the premiere of Evolve for me. It's a pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for, thanks for asking me. Uh, in, my, in my piece to camera, I introduce you, and I, I tend to do that um, for the guests bef before having them sit through me, um, uh, you know, destroying their career history in, in, front, in front of them. <laughs> Um, I was really interested in, in, you know, we didn't go through everything, but 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 there's a big um, contribution that you make to academia, um, particularly. And you know, I look at my notes here around the roles of a lecturer, a visiting scholar, visiting professor. But interestingly to me, you don't regard yourself as an academic at all, right? And, no, and I, no, not really. Yeah, and I think not many people would know that you worked for IBM for a, for a long time. People that do. Yeah. 13 years. Well, people that do know at least your name and know Joe Pine as kind of these, uh, one of the, the, the leaders of thinking around business dynamics today, and they, they think, um, you know, in terms of, I guess, your story or Joe Pine's life started in 1998, right? As far as, as, far as that <laughs> kind of public persona is concerned. But I'd love the backstory, you know, who was Joe Pine? What was the journey before that? And, and maybe touch on, you know, your collaboration with Jim Gilmore as well. We should do a shout out to Jim. We really appreciate all his work with you as well. I'd love that, I'd love that background. Well, you know, I, I, I am a, a geek from way back, or at least uh, my, my wife says I aspired to be a geek. I was really a nerd, even though she didn't know me until much later. Um, but, uh, you know, I started using computers actually in elementary school. My dad was in computers. Uh, he worked for IBM for a short time, uh, but he was into the, you know, in the computer industry in the late 1950s. Uh, he worked on the ARPANET, you know, before the internet was was ever ever wow. invented. And I, we actually had a teletype in our home in Palo Alto, California. And I won't, uh, if you don't know what a teletype is, you know, go look it up on Wikipedia. You'll be amazed at, at the way we communicated with computers back then. Uh, and so I actually decided to become a computer programmer uh, in seventh grade. And then got a uh, applied mathematics degree to move towards that and, and, and joined IBM. And it started in very technical jobs uh, in Rochester, Minnesota, where we developed the uh, uh, AS400 mini computer. And by the time that uh, came out, I moved up into management and, and uh, managed a group of people that brought customers and business partners into the development process. And... Uh, it was a big, a big thing at, at IBM at time. We'd never actually talked to customers before we produced a, a computer before. <laughs> and this allowed us to really to, to, to improve the quality, to enhance the system, to get applications available on day one. That was the first time that had ever happened. Uh, and, um, and through that process, though, what I learned is that every one of those customers was unique. 
you know, they wanted to use this system in different ways and, and connect it to different hardware, different software, different data. They're unremittingly unique. And right. we had designed the AS400 for this large mini computer marketplace, you know, that simply didn't exist. And so I moved from there into strategic planning and uh, uh, discovered uh, the book Future Perfect by Stan Davis, right? He's my intellectual idol. And I think his book is as applicable today as when he wrote it back in 1987, if you believe that. And um, he coined the term mass customization. And when I, when I read that chapter on mass customizing, it was like the, the heavens opened up and the angels sang because it explained exactly what I was seeing with, uh, with all these customers I was now talking to. So I worked to get that into our plans and strategies and, and, and IBM partly as a reward for that work um, sent me to MIT for a year to get my master's degree in the management of technology. And I took that opportunity and I found out I had to write a thesis that I was going to write a thesis I could turn into a book. And that's what I did. You know, and I, 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 I outlined a book for my thesis. I got done what I could get done at MIT. When I, I got a book contract with Harvard uh, Business School Press. When I got back to IBM, I, I joined uh, uh, the IBM Consulting Group that gave me time to finish it. And in late 1992 was my first book, Mass Customization, uh, The New Frontier in Business Competition. And so that's the, that's the one way back here. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that sort of set me off. You know, I was doing client executive education at the IBM Advanced, in Advanced Business Institute. And I, uh, uh, IBM in, in mid-1993 offered my wife and I, she worked there too, both um, a six-month salary to leave. And I thought, well, let me see if I can make it on my own. And so I did. And, um, and it was, and, and, and then I needed a client. So that's when I contacted Jim Gilmore. He had, he had contacted me a few months before and I still worked at IBM. And he said that uh, when he, when he first saw it on a bookstore shelf, his reaction was, oh shoot, somebody else had already written it because he was focused on mass customization. So we sparked up a friendship and then collegiality. And then we started writing together. And so we joined, joined forces in uh, January, 1996 to uh, create strategic horizons. Time. We actually have a third partner too, I should mention, in case he's listening and, you know. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, Doug Parker. Uh, Doug Parker worked for Jim when he was at CSC Consulting and we brought him over as our, as our marketing guy, right? Our business model was two gurus and a marketer. And Doug <laughs> has become so much more, right? You know, he did, well, we're doing our research, doing our writing, speaking around the world, teaching and whatnot, you know, he's back in the, in the home office and does absolutely everything else. And, and we couldn't exist without him. That's fantastic. Well, shout out there as well. As, as well. <laughs> Great teams, right? It's all about teams today. I, I, um, I kind of have, before I jump into some questions here, a little bit of a confession to make. Uh, I, I find... <laughs> You're a <stalker. laughs> Yes, that's right. My name's not Aaron Spinley at all. Um, I'm about to ask you a whole bunch of very personal questions. No, I, I find in my work, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that you will have as well, certainly probably more than me, that when you talk about growth strategy with people, um, you talk about the experience economy, you talk about digital Darwinism, these sorts of concepts, people have heard the term, particularly the experience economy, but almost in very generalist terms, right? I mean, Lots of people love to throw a word in front of the term economy. We have a gig economy. We have a consumption economy. I, 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 I hate that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and they kind of, it, it gets, I heard one the other day, the, we have an API economy, right? Oh, okay. It, get, <laughs> it gets sort of, it gets lost. And people begin to think about the experience economy as kind of like a marketing slogan for people that want to sell digital technology or a yep. creative agency trying to sell services or it's a, you know, a management consultant buzz term or something like that. And it's lost on them that it's actually one of the four economic areas. And it has, you know, distinct attributes and it consists of distinct economic offerings. And it's about this progression of value that you talk about a lot. And so what I'd love to do today, and I know you've done a lot of this, so I promise we'll get to some of the more <laughs> up-to-date thinking as well, or the new thinking, is is really get back to basics a little bit. You know, this notion of, you know, our progression from sort of an agrarian society into, you know, the industrial um, era and then the services revolution and, and where we find ourselves today. So um, it's easy to talk headlines, but there's a lot behind those things. I'd love you just to unpack that a little bit as a foundation piece. You know, where did we start? 
how did we evolve economically? And I guess that speaks to societally as well. And, and where are we now? You know, I, I do believe, like you, that we should reserve the term economy for these big fundamental shifts, right? Not just in how business gets done, but in the society overall and things that have worldwide you know, uh, implications that affect, you know, almost everybody. API right. economy, right? How, how many people does that, you know, actually affect that are working on APIs? Like normal consumer doesn't even know what the term means for, you know, for crying out loud. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but um, the, the, there are, you know, but, so what most economists recognize is three fundamental economies, the agrarian economy, the industrial economy, and the service economy. So the agrarian economy lasted for millennia, and, and it was basically where you, you extract commodities out of the ground. The commodities are the basic economic offering, the agrarian economy, you know, farmers, and, and that would um, plant wheat and corn and and uh, uh, apples and, and uh, they would uh, have pigs and cows and all of these are basic commodities, right? They right. are what they are. And then they'd extract them and sell them on the open marketplace, right? That's the basis of the agrarian economy. If you go back to the year 1776 and, and Aaron being from, you know, is it Australia or New Zealand? I sometimes get confused. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a dual citizen, so I'm not offended with either one. I'm, I'm born in New Zealand. I live in okay. Australia. So, you know, for, for being down under, right, down there, you may not know what happened in 1776, you know, but, but it's a very important year because, of course, in 1776 was when Adam Smith wrote The, the Wealth of Nations and the first really economic book out there. You know, okay. something else happened in the U.S. then, but I forget what it was. But if you go back to then, how many people would you guess, Aaron, uh, in the U.S. at least, I don't know the Australian statistics. Well, I'm not even sure Australian was a country in 1776. Now that I think about it, right. <laughs> but, but how many? What was percent of people would you guess in the U.S. Um, uh, what were were worked on farms in that time? Oh, look, I'm going to say 90 percent, maybe more. Ex exactly, it was over 90 percent, right? But okay. what's that percent today? It's actually less than two. Well, okay, I was going to say less, less than, than 10. Two. We've gone from 90% well. of the people to less than 2% of people. Why? Because uh, thanks to productivity improvements and technological improvements, it takes fewer and fewer people to produce more and more output, right? So the agrarian economy has gone down in employment and GDP, and of course, not just in the U.S., but around the world. There are still many countries that are, that are undeveloped that, that have subsistence farming and, and, and there were agriculture is our right. primary thing. But in all developed economies, it's a very minor part of the economy. And uh, not that it's ever going to go away. So then in the, in, the, in the beginning of the late 1700s in England and then over in the U.S. and then across to other developed countries has happened the, the, the Industrial Revolution. And that created the industrial economy where goods became the predominant economic offering. What most consumers bought was finished goods rather than buy the commodities and make the goods themselves. Right, or even, or even, you know, kill the animals themselves and, and for dinner and, and, and whatnot. Instead, they pay other people to do that. So, um, if you go back, like, well, the turn of the of the 20th century to 1900, over 50 percent of the people in the U.S. were in manufacturing jobs at that time, you know, and over 40 percent were still in, in agrarian and commodity jobs. But that percent today is gone down below 8 percent in the U.S. You know, from, from almost 50% down to 8% of, of the people in just a little over 100 years. Because again, thanks to technological and productivity improvements, it takes fewer and fewer people to produce more and more goods. So in the 20th century, what happens, we shifted into a service economy. And services weren't even recognized as a distinct economic offering until the late 1800s. You know, Adam Smith didn't, didn't recognize them. He, he said services were, were of no value whatsoever. Right, even though they, they were what get got goods to market and so forth, they said doesn't matter. The real value is in the commodities and the goods. So it took over a hundred years to recognize services. But by the time the if you look back to the nineteen fifties, is probably when services first overtook goods as the primary economic offering, as what consumers wanted, as a major component of employment, of GDP. And that continued to grow and grow and grow until it became, you know, by the 80s, 90s, it became over 80% of the economy. 
So but what's happened is that goods and services have both become mere commodities, right? They've been commoditized, right? Not true commodities economically, but they've been, they're treated as, as commodities. Right. When people don't care about the, the features or the benefits, they don't care about the brand, they're all pretty much the same thing. They come to care about three things and three things only, and that's price, price, and price, right? That's when goods and services have been uh, commoditized. So what that means is that it's time to shift to a new level of economic value, to go beyond the goods and services to staging experiences for your customers. So the most important thing, in fact, if, if all your listeners, all your watchers only, only heard one thing to, today, got one thing out of it, this is what I want them to understand, that experiences are a distinct economic offering, as distinct right. from services as services are from goods. Basically, when you use goods as props and services as a stage to engage each and every individual in an inherently personal way and thereby create a memory, which is the hallmark of the experience. So that's what experiences are. And what's happened, you know, since we first wrote the book and we discovered the experience economy in like, like early 1994, uh, first wrote about it in 1996, came out with the first book on it in 99, now the third edition. Uh, uh, the experience economy competing for customer time, attention, and money has just been published in the last six weeks. And, um, and, and now we can say we're truly in an experience economy where experiences are becoming the, have become the predominant economic offering. They're what consumers and increasingly business people want over goods and services as they all become their commodities. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, it's a great, I know you could, you could probably break that down for three days because I know there's so yeah. much, so much to that, but that's a really, a really great sort of foundation setting. And, and I know, see, for me, one of the things I find interesting is that the early work that you were doing with, with German 94, 96, 98, this kind of period yeah. that led up to the book um, and all that critical thinking that was done then, and, and correct me if, if you disagree, but, but I feel like essentially more relevant today, or at least it's more material in the way that we're seeing business operate today and, and how a business should operate tomorrow than almost it was in 98. Do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, I do. Is it like people sometimes would accuse us of being futurists and we say, well, we, didn't, we don't tell you what's going to happen in the future. We tell you what's happening now, but you don't yet see it. And not as many people saw it back in the 1990s. Here, you can't help but see it. You know, when, when yeah. we first started talking about it, we used to have to argue with people that this was going on and show economic statistics and all these examples and why and wherefores and so forth. Now, most people, I just say, hey, goods and services are enough. People want experiences now. We've entered an experience economy. And people go, well, yeah, of course. They get it. Because they see it all yeah. around them. It's in the air. And so more and more companies have embraced the experience economy and are using its principles, whether they're getting them from us or from all the other books that are now being written about it, they're using principles of experience design to be able to create those engaging, memorable, personal experiences. Yeah, and it's, you know, what's interesting to me is in the same year that you released the first book, Schwartzway was coining the term digital Darwinism. And in many ways, I mean, he was talking about the web, right? In many ways, what we've seen in the last decade just concluded is really placed on steroids, those concepts as well. So 99 was a big year. <laughs> and and, and when you think about it, and, and I know you've spoken about this, so this is a little bit of a segue for you to talk a little bit more. I mean, my work is a lot often around how technology is affecting society and society in reverse affects technology. And we, we're in this kind of infinite loop now um, and, and businesses are trying to keep up with that and, and find ways to leverage and grow within that dynamic. And I, I know one of the great changes, even if you talk mobile, it's connecting back to the internet. If you talk social, it's connecting back to the internet. So one of these foundational of the big three, if you like, of, of internet, mobile and social has been the internet. And, and you've talked about um, the internet being a great form of commodity or a, or a force of commoditization. Explain that a little bit more for people. Well, you know, the, the internet originally was a wondrous new, new arena in which we could have experiences. You know, people right. don't use this term any, much anymore, but back then the big term was surfing. 
right? You surfed the internet. The notion yeah. was you were, you know, you're moving around from site to site. You were having all these sights and sounds that are delivered to you personally, right, on your computer, and and you were you were you're sliding over this and just letting it wash in on you. And I forgot like, about that, Tim. I forgot about that. <laughs> See, you don't even remember the term yeah. surfing. Yeah. So, uh, but what happened was, is the internet became. You know, probably not 99. I'm trying to think of when did we first say this? It was probably, I don't know, maybe 2002 or three, I'm guessing, that we first said that this, which is that the internet is the greatest force of commodization ever invented. <laughs> because what happens is websites develop and companies got all these websites, particularly as Amazon you know, became a big thing. It was the number one element uh -huh. in this. Uh, is that the frictionless marketplace meant that customers can instantly compare prices from one vendor to another, and it tends to push them down to the lowest possible price. So and that applies to, to goods, but it also applies to services. You look at uh, financial services, you know, way back when you wanted to sell a, or buy a block of shares with a full service broker, it cost you $200 or more. Today, right it costs as low as zero, right? I used to say $3, but just in the last few months, it's gone to zero. Right. Uh, you, can, you can pay zero money to be able to, to do that. And it's because of the rise of internet brokers like E-Trade and, and so forth. So, um, uh, so you see that, that force of commodization, no matter what business you're in, if it can be sold over the internet, then there's, there, there's this, this force of commodization. So you got to forestall the forces of commodization and the way to do that is to shift up and go again, go beyond those goods and services to staging experiences. Yeah. And look, you, you may have answered this already with your, with your brokerage example. Um, but you know, if you think about 07, so which is sort of what nine years after you published the book, we were at a, a billion internet users at mm -hmm. 2012, we were at 2 billion. And then just last year we were approaching 4.5 billion. So do you see, that escalation of internet consumption has, has escalated that commoditization effect as well? Or do you think we've passed that critical mass? No, no, I think it, I think it is still accelerating. Um, that as more and more users get on, you know, they didn't have access to it. You think about, you know, places in India and, and Africa and other places, China, yeah. of course, you know, where you didn't have access much 15 years ago. So now, you, whenever you've got a middle class and even a, and a lower end, people are going to want to buy things at a lower price and companies are going to offer it because now they can reach so many more people, right? You used to have some geographic separation that, that kept some of those forces of commodization at bay because you only competed with competitors in your geographic area. But yeah. now you literally compete against the world. It means that you can access people and there's, and there's always going to be somebody who's going to be willing to, uh, to sell it more cheaply. Do you think there's been other forces of maybe just not commoditization, it may be some other technology or change in society that is recent that you see as a game changer with the same kind of effect? Well, the, I, I think that um, one is the use of digital technology in and of itself outside of the internet, uh, right. that the rise of augmented reality and virtual reality and, and 3D printing you know, 3D printing is basically taking is the digitization of atoms of physical things. Yeah, uh, you know, is, is what's going on there, and and that has had a huge impact and and will continue in the future. With with that's why one of my books I wrote is called Infinite Possibility: Creating Customer Value on the Digital Frontier. And it's all about how you use digital technology to fuse the real and the virtual. And right. I think that's a a a a, a big big deal uh, that you see today. Um, you in, in um, experiences, one of the things that's only been around, well, you, you can go back to, you know, the late 2000s, I think, is when smartphones or phones, and forget smartphones, just phones, probably then early 2000s, when phones started having cameras, right? And the ability yeah. to take pictures of any experience that you're having, right, has seen a big shift from not just buying physical memorabilia for the experience, but having these digital memories. In fact, I, I get a kick out of, I see more and more that people use the term memory when they're actually referring to a photo. Right. I've seen it for businesses, I've seen it for consumers. Right? Isn't that interesting? Right? We have, you know, you, we've outsourced cognitive function now. on our cloud. <laughs> <laughs> my memories are in here. That's just a, a, a digital representation of it. 
Right. But that's going on. So we see the rise of Instagrammable places, right? Instagrammability is places, places right. to experience the museum of ice cream, uh, the Rose mansion and, and all these other places where people are basically going to be able to be in a big scene that is, that, that looks beautiful on Instagram and taking their selfies and posting them there and in Facebook and, and Twitter and so forth. And so you in, include with that is that whole rise of, of social media. And then the, uh, the other big thing, um, I would say, and, and it gets back to my first book, it gets back to, to um, the internet, is the rise of customization, of being able to customize our goods, our services, and increasingly our experiences for each individual person. It's yeah. in fact how I discovered the experience economy is from my work on mass customization, where I realized that mass customizing a good turns it into a service because it's done on demand. It's done when the customer says this is what they want. Uh, and um, it's, it's not inventory, but it's produced on demand and so forth. Well, I realized that services then turn, uh, our customization turns services into experiences. That when you design a service that's so appropriate right. for this particular person, exactly the service that they need at, at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go wow and turn it into a memorable event, turn it into an, an experience. So the internet allows, now allows us to, to um, uh, interact with billions of, not just millions, but billions of customers around the world to, to interact with them individually. And then with mass customization techniques, we can then customize our goods, our services, and our experiences uh, mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, I think in recent times, the, the digital marketing um, world has picked up on a lot around this term personalization. Uh, I wrote an article about that um, on Paul Greenberg's column on ZDNet at the start of this year and the journey we've been on there. And it continues to be uh, a journey as we figure out, you know, how to not break social contracts and things like that um, as we, you know, as we look to engage in more and more personal ways. And experiences are so personal in nature because they, experiences are about perspective, right? In many ways. Yeah. Well, experiences so, are inherently personal. Yeah. No two people, even if in the same place at the same time, no two people can ever have the same experience because where does it happen? It happens inside of us. It's our reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. Yeah, I love so that. the more personal you get, the more engaging you can be, the better you reach inside of people and create that experience. You know, Commodities are these arms length things we hardly ever touch and feel anymore. Goods are objects that we own, like our cars, like our books, like, like our shirts and so forth. But services are activities performed on those objects, like cleaning my service, changing my shirt, uh, changing the oil in my car, or cutting my hair, right? But they're all outside of us. Experiences for the, for the first time reach inside of us. And that's, again, yeah. a fundamental distinction. That's uh, a really... In fact, if anyone takes anything away from the show, I know you want to say a couple of things before. <laughs> to me, that's, that's, that's probably one of the most fundamental truths of, of the experience economy. I'd like to change tack a, a little bit here. One of those areas of your work that, are, that I've really related to um, is this notion around um, businesses finding a way to, to make their, um, to treat their goods as props and their services as a stage, right? And you mentioned it a little bit earlier. I, I haven't, I'm an old drama student, so I, I um, oh, really? yes, yeah, so I've got a performing arts background and I think it's a really, I really like your example there because to me it speaks to this notion around how liberal arts and, and creativity in general really needs to find a more permanent and more valued home within corporate, you know, businesses and institutions. Yep. What's your view on that connection of creativity or performance, as, as you've called out, but other forms of creativity well, in business today? Yeah, I'll go back to the original subtitle of the experience economy, which is work is theater and every business is stage. And we, and we literally mean that when you are in the business of staging experiences, your work is theater. Whenever you're in front of customers, whether you do it, um, uh, whether you know it or not, whether you do it well or not, you're on stage and need right. to act in a way that engages the audience, right? That, that one of the key things with experiences is you've got to design the time the customers spend with you. And right. that means that you're, you're, you're adding in drama, right? You've got to have dramas when you have an experience that, that rises up to a climax and then comes back down again, right? That's basically what drama is. 
And most companies, when they design experience, though, it's, it's very flat. A lot of companies are even afraid of drama. Well, drama, that means something's going wrong. That means that they're not getting exactly what they want. They're, they're not, it's taking too much time and so forth. No, no, no. Drama is good. But yeah. even like you think of going to a Starbucks and you give your order to, to, to one person, but it's going to come out someplace else. Where exactly is it? When is it? Is that my order? Do they say my name? Does that look like my cup? Is this is it? Right? That's drama. And, yeah. it, and, it's, and that little mini drama there adds an element of experience just in ordering a Starbucks. Yeah, I love it. You know, I've always felt as well as I've immersed myself into the space over the last five, 10 years um, that, you know, as an, as an example, when I was a drama student, I used to invest a lot of my time into character development. You know, I didn't just want to read a script. I wanted to know what was behind the words. So what were the motivations? What was the character's fears and aspirations? And what was their psychology, right? Um, and now you sort of, if you spend time in a marketing team, you'll hear them talk about personas and archetypes, right? So it's not the first area that we can, you know, we see this um, borrowed from. I think we could probably be better at that. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, you know, our, our target is soccer, soccer moms. And it's like, well, that's, right. a nice, that's a nice headline, right? <laughs> what does that right. mean, right? And then, and it, only, yeah, it only describes, you know, hundreds of millions of people, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so <laughs> we call that targeting, do we? Right, right. so, right. but the notion is right, right? The notion around who are we talking to is right. Right, although, although I always think you need to get beyond the persona level and think about the individual. It's always an individual living, breathing person that buys from you. That's right. right. And personas don't buy anything. And people that's have right. multiple personas. Yeah. That, that they can exemplify. We tend to just pigeonhole people and then target them and, and push all our stuff to them rather than pull out from them what it is that they really, truly want and need. Yeah. You know, I actually did a, a webinar earlier today with a product information management company. And there, most of their clients are developed websites. And the, the principle of theater applies not just if you're in a physical place and we're talking one-on-one. It applies if you're, if you're uh, in a chat room. It applies if you're doing it over email, if you're in a contact center and, and talking to somebody on the phone, and it applies to the website as well. And one of my favorite books is Brenda Laurel's Computers as Theater, where she makes the point that, that we need to think of the computer not as a tool, but as a medium, a medium for experience. And she's actually the, the one who introduced me in reading her book to the topic of dramatic structure and, and what that's all about. So it's very important when you design a website even that you think about the drama that people have, not just the customer journey, which is really your journey of what you want the customer to do that ends with buy, 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 right? It's the actual drama of the website and how you engage them and draw them through, entice them to come through and be engaged and spend more time on your site. Yeah, I want you to hold that thought because I'm going to bring you back back to it. Um, It it speaks a little bit to a subject I want to unpack a little bit with you. I'd like to t- just take a business-to-business lens for a moment. In the series, um, I'm, I'm going to try and do that a little bit. I think sometimes there's been almost a propensity from some, some of those, particularly in the more, I guess, traditional tranches of B2B, like manufacturing, et cetera, to, to kind of go, well, all that stuff's interesting, guys, but it's really for the B2C world. It's for the consumers, right? And if I, if I talk about, um, for a moment, this notion of, marketing in inverted commas in any in any sentence structure but you replace that word marketing with experience i really wonder because we're getting to this nub of of the fact that we're engaging with humans no matter what type of business exactly whether that gap is is justified today as perhaps it used to be what's your view on that no (laughs) there'll always probably be a gap between consumers and business Right. right, consumers consumers are, are much more willing to pay uh, money for things that they're not sure of the value. They'll take a flyer on the value of particular experiences because until you've experienced it, you really don't know how good it is. Even if people have told you, you know, we've all been to movies that somebody told us it was a great movie and you thought it was rubbish. You know, but um, you know, business people are are sort of more hard nosed, as we would say. They they do want to understand the value, but it gets back right right to what you said, Aaron. Is that business people are people too, right? They're human beings, and they much more much rather spend their time in engaging experiences than in boring meetings, for example. Yeah. One of the ways I like to think about it is liking it. Like, let me compare going to a theme park. 
right? Like going to Walt Disney World. My wife and I earlier this month were at Walt Disney World. We were in Orlando for a week. And we pay an admission fee to go in. We have a wonderful experience. Now, sure, we buy goods and services. We buy, you know, we actually, you know, I often say you buy Mickey Mouse hats and watches. We, in fact, came back with two droids from Star Wars Galaxy Edge. And, uh, and you buy services, parking services, food services, photographic services. But why you go and why you pay that admission fee that signals this is an experience is because of the shared family experience that you have with right. memories that last not just for days and weeks, but for months and years afterwards. So you think about B2B is I submit that going to a trade show is just the business to business equivalent of going to Disney World. Right. You're paying an admission fee to go in this huge area with all these different attractions, different lands even, and then attractions within them. They're all trying to get you to spend time with them and you're buying goods and you're buying services and, and they all want you to buy their goods right in the, in the trade show. If not right there, then when you get back home as memorabilia for the great experience that you're having. So you do in fact see it in, in business to business. Uh, I'll mention uh, Dassault Systems in France has taken all of its CAD CAM software and put it under the rubric of a 3D experience platform that they want engineers to have an experience in designing the product, right? Design in 3D is much different experience than on, on first of all, on paper or than the flat, you know, 2D screen sort of world. But once you, they have that experience, they can design things so much better because of the 3D experience, then they can turn it over to marketing and sales and they can use these same exact designs and be able to show off their product. Again, the, the product experience management uh, and then um, you can uh, give them actually designs to customers and let them see products that have yet to be even produced that could be customized for them and let you experience those, you know, as the, as the end consumer in, in this chain. You also, yeah. I'll, I'll just give one more example. We can talk about more if you want, but one of my favorite examples in the world is case construction equipment right now. If you can do it with huge, big behemoths of construction equipment, you ought to be able to do it with most anything in B2B, right? So Case has created the Tomahawk Experience Center in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, the U.S., where they bring potential customers up to literally play with the equipment, right? It's like a giant sandbox, and they have rodeos and contests about who can move the most amount of dirt in the shortest amount of time. And they did, Case did a study, and they found that a normal, normal potential customer goes up to one of their dealers, they have perhaps a 20% chance of getting the business. They go to the Tomahawk Experience Center, goes up to 80%. From 20% to 80%, because the fundamental principle, the experience is the marketing, right? The, the, the primary way of generating demand for your product, whatever it is, is with an experience so engaging that people can't help but spend time with you, give you their attention and buy up as a result. Yeah. Uh, and um, and, and that, that's true for consumers as it is for, for B2B. Yeah, I think so too. And, and I had secretly hoped that you would tell that story. I've heard you tell okay. it a couple of times. I know that you love it and it's... Uh, I've actually borrowed it from you a couple of times talking to people as well. So I confess it's an, it's an amazing story, that one. And All I right, like no it. Right no, <laughs> yeah, the, the invoice is in the post or something, right? Uh, the, um, the thing that I like there as well, you, you reminded me of an experience I had a little while ago. You talked about the experiences, the marketing. I was at an event uh, not long ago or listening to uh, a, a guy speak who's quite a prominent CMO in this part of the world. And uh, his comment was, you know, if you get the marketing organization right, you don't need the sales organization. And, and, so, I, and I know a lot of people I talk to go, you know what, if you get the experience right, you don't need the marketing organization, right? Exactly, <laughs> so we're all busy exactly. making each other redundant here. It's, so it's actually, it's a famous Peter Drucker quote. I don't know right. if he knows he's quoting Peter Drucker, um, but it's a famous Peter Drucker quote, which is that the aim of marketing is to make selling superfluous. Right, to which you, we have added many times and written about this that the aim of experience is to make marketing superfluous, right? That you get rid of that, you use experiences as the demand generator. And one of the, in, the, in the new book on uh, competing for customer time, attention, and money, one of the things we say on the, on the money side is you need to shift your advertising to experience ratio. You need to stop spending so much money on advertising, on targeting, as we talked about, on inter you know what you know, fundamentally advertising is it's interrupting the experience that people want to be having at this moment in time. That's what yeah. an ad is. Stop doing that and yeah. instead shift your money into experiences that actually entice them 
engage them and get them to want to buy your product as a result. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Listen, I have to ask this question. It's one of, uh, for me anyway, and uh, I hope it's interesting to the audience, but it's certainly interesting to me. A uh, piece of your work where you have uh, had this proposition that possibly uh, experienced economics or the experienced economy is, is possibly the last fundamental economic shift. And, you know, I can almost feel people shift in their seats when you say that, right? It's almost like, well, is the world about to end? We're, we're so from conditioned now to change. Surely, if we've learned anything, the only thing we know is that the only constant has changed, that kind of thing. But you have some really interesting propositions around that. I'd love you just to expand on that idea. Right. Well, well, in fact, and we wrote about this, we talk about it, experiences are, in fact, not the final economic offer. Okay. So you've just there blown away more. my question. And then I say no more. <laughs> okay. right? Then I say no more, and then we can have a debate about it. Okay. But there is at least one, because we always ask what's next. Right? It's always what's next. And, and you really have to think richly. We've developed so many wonderful frameworks by asking what's next. And we asked it around the experience economy. And, and, and recognizing again that customization is the antidote to commodization. Commodization is like the law of gravity, right? If you do nothing else over time, you're going to be commoditized. Right. But customization lifts you up. It's the antidote. It, it, if you customize your, your offerings for a particular customer, you can't help but be differentiated. And so what happens when you customize an experience? What happens when you just design an experience that is so appropriate for this particular person or business at this moment in time, well, then you can't help but turn to what we often call a life transforming experience. In other words, an experience that changes us in some way, right? And that we call a transformation. And a transformation is the fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value. We're using experiences as the raw material to guide people to change, wow. to help them achieve their aspirations, in other words. And, and that's, the, that's the most economic value you can provide is to help somebody achieve their aspirations. And, and many businesses are naturally in the, the transformation business. Think about uh, fitness centers. You know, why do people go to fitness centers and endure all that work, sweat, and pain? Because they think the gain will be worth it. Uh, healthcare, is, why is it such a big part of GDP today? It's not just that costs are rise so much, it's that people value it so much more highly because it transforms us. It allows right. us to live longer, allows us to recover from illnesses, from injuries and so forth. And we value that so much more highly than we did in the past. And healthcare is about uh, university, education is about transformations and so forth. So, and, and, and we, you, know, we, you brought up B2B. I think B2B is very crucial to, to recognize the value of transformation because no customer of yours ever buys your offering because they want your offering. It's always a means to an end. And if you sell the end rather than the means, then you'll gain much more economic value. And that end is changing the business, right? The people are buying these offerings from you because they want to change business, a better business as a result. How do you help them achieve that surrounding that core offering you're, you're selling them? But how do you go beyond that to help them change their business for the better? Yeah, okay. And transformation is something that you, you, you can't get more personal than that, right? Right. Well, yeah. Beautiful point, Aaron. We talked about experiences happening inside of us. Well, guess what? Transformations change us from the mm -hmm. inside out. You, you're exactly right. You can't get more personal than that because you're actually changing people as a result. Now, there's a lot of, of, of uh, moral issues with that, you know, that you're changing people. We are all, as the saying goes, we're all the product of our experience. You need to be thinking richly about that. You yeah. need to apply not just data and information and knowledge, but wisdom yeah. uh, in doing that well. But, uh, you know, but, but if there's, again, so much more economic value. And increasingly, that's what people will be looking for is not just experiences that, that are fleeting and ephemeral, but looking for lasting transformations from the experiences that they have. Yeah, very powerful stuff. Very powerful stuff because it's more than about business growth and growth strategy and all these things that we spend our time thinking about. It's, it's far more fundamental than that, isn't it? It's very human. Exactly. It, it, well, and the way to think about it is with transformations, the customer is the product. <laughs> the customer is the yeah. product. It doesn't matter all these, what you offerings, what products you provide, doesn't matter what services you do, what activities you do. The only matters is, did the customer achieve their aspiration or not? And like you say, that's, that is as personal as you can get. Yeah. 
I'd like, I'd like to take, change tack again a little bit. I, I have a proposition, something that I've always felt, and I'd like to test it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my work, I, you know, I think you're aware, I, I spend a lot of time in the, this, this domain that everyone calls CX now, so CRM, customer engagement, that whole right. growth kind of, um, that kind of space. I see, I, I see what question's coming, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For me, I, I'm a critic of that space sometimes and the language that's used and the, um, and I can, I can feel some colleagues sharpening their knives as they listen to this, but, um, but this, there's, a, <laughs> there, there's this obsession sometimes with terms which I think are misused. And one of, the, one, the dominant one I think at the moment is this term frictionless, mm-hmm. right? Where I need to qualify that quickly probably because it's important that obviously we have uh, the important parts of a customer journey that is our, are as low touch and as easy to navigate as possible. They are, they are for all intents and purposes yep. as frictionless as we can make them. And you know, transactional touch points is a great example of that. But if I'm a growth strategist today and my job is about building lifetime customer value, then I need to build engagement. And the way that I need to build engagement today is through experiences that is the birthplace of a memory that creates the emotion that becomes my brand perception. And there's a lot of kind of, I think, danger in the way that we pull everything into this frictionless world. I know that if I need to uh, engage someone at a certain level, I need to elevate their cognitive state. I need to get them out of the subconscious where it's all frictionless and easy. And I need to have targeted points of what I call designed friction. Now, you may not, you can replace the word friction if you like, but that's the term I use because I'm trying to create meaningful, lasting engagement. And that means I need to engage people cognitively. And that means I need experiences, which means I can't be frictionless at those points. Right. What's your perspective on that? And, and drama is, would, could be another word you could put there. For friction, right. drama right. is friction. That's again right. why a lot of key companies are afraid of it. You, you you said that so well, Aaron. I'm not sure I need to add anything because <laughs> I agree exactly with you. Um, so the the I guess I guess I'll well, I'll say I'll put it this term because increasingly when people use the term CX or customer experience, right, one of those terms you're talking about. Right. They they tend to mean let's they mean frictionless, right? Let's make our interactions with customers nice and easy and convenient, and those are all well and good. But nice, easy, and convenient and frictionless are service characteristics. They're not right. experience characteristics. Right. Right. So nice is nice, but rarely does it rise to the level of memorability. And if you didn't create a memory, then you didn't create an engaging experience. Um, uh, easy, you know, we, we want to make things easy for customers. Often we routinize them for our employees and, and, and our processes. And that's where frictionless really comes in as easy as frictionless. Then it, it really gets in the way of being personal. And yeah. again, experiences are inherently personal. When you routinize things, you, you treat everybody the same. And that's mm-hmm. often the case with frictionless uh, services. And then convenience is the antithesis of what I'm talking about, because convenience means let's get in and out as quickly as possible. Let's spend as little time with your customers as possible. And, and time is the currency of the experience economy. And, and it, time is what people value when they're buying an experience from you. The way to think about it is this way, is that services are about time well saved. And there we want it to be nice and easy and convenient. We want it to be frictionless. In fact, consumers and increasingly business people want goods and services to be commoditized, to bought, be bought at the lowest possible price with the greatest possible convenience so they can spend their hard-earned money and their harder-earned time on the experiences that they value. So while services are time well saved, experiences are time well spent. Right, time well spent, that you actually value the time that you spend with. And, and what drama is again, what theater is again, is designing time. It's designing the time that customers spend with you. And yeah. that doesn't mean frictionless. Now, and you're, you're a technology guy too. So, so let me mention that you think about this progression of economic value from commodities to goods to services to experiences and even to transformations, is that it's a stack. Right? It's a stack and they're all built on top of each other. Right. You can't transform without experiences. You can't have experiences without services. And you do want the service aspects to be frictionless, to be nice and easy, convenient. 
right? Think about going to a, right. a Disney theme park again. You want to spend a half hour trying to get your ticket and get into the gate, right? That's the part that should be frictionless so that you can then go spend your time on everything that you came there for, the time well spent, right? And so on with, with goods and services. And, and I'll add this too, is that, that transformations, uh, we talked about services as time well saved, goods as, uh, or experiences as time well spent, Ex transformations are time well invested. So this, people invest their time, that they, they get compound interest that pays dividends now and into the future because the experience is actually changing them for the better in some way. Right. And these are the sorts of concepts that you've introduced in, in your more recent release of the book, right? Yes. This notion of competing for customer time and tension and money. Yeah, yeah. And that time model is in there in this, uh, the new preview to, uh, to the book. So, you know, what we say is that time is the currency of experiences. And what people are buying from you is their time spent well. And, you know, the number one competitor for any company in any industry, consumer B2B, for the attention of customers today, <coughs> excuse me, is in fact a smartphone. That people can instantly drop down uh, into, uh, you know, into a virtual world on their smartphone through just a tap or a swipe, and then they're out of your experience. And then while money should never be the purpose, you know, making money should never be the purpose of any company, it is the measure of how well you fulfill your purpose. Right. And so we, we talk about time uh, and, the, and, and the importance of it, the value of it. And there, there's been an explosion over the last 20 years in the, the number of experiences that people can spend their time in, whether that's in the real world or in, in a virtual world. Uh, and then attention is we talk about the, the basic models in the, in the book that allow you to capture people's attention by making your experiences first robust, then cohesive, then personal, as we talked about with, with mass customization, then dramatic with theater, and then finally even transformative for, for some people. And that's all about capturing their attention, keeping their attention, and using that to create that great experience, even that transformative experience. And then with money, we introduce some new measures. <coughs> Excuse me, the key one is, is the money value of time or MVT. Okay. Right, we're, we're all, you're familiar with the time value of money. Right. And there is the old saying, time is money. Well, that means that money is time as well. And so the way to measure, the key way to measure your experience is by understanding how much money are people spending per unit of time, right? Your expenditure per minute, we call it. That's your MVT. And think about it this way. If you go to a movie, you're spending around, differs in various areas and so forth, times a day, weeks, but you're spending around 10 US cents per minute. That's what a movie is worth. That's a good experience. If you can get people to pay you 10 cents a minute for being you, for your experience, and that's great. You know? And all that takes, for example, is like a, a half hour in Starbucks. And you spend a half hour in a Starbucks and you, you price out your latte and then you, uh, you're paying around 10 cents a minute. Uh, then think about going to, again, a Disney theme park. They get around 20 cents per minute right? It's twice as much. That's an even greater experience. If you get 20% per minute, you've got a great experience. But these Instagrammable places I mentioned, like the Museum of Ice Cream, or you right. think about um, uh, escape rooms, you know, something that didn't exist 20 years ago. Now there's 10, over 10,000 of them around the world. The escape rooms and, and, and those sorts of places get around 40 cents per minute, another order of magnitude. And then it just goes from there. There are experiences where that you can spend dollars per minute, hundreds of dollars, even thousands of dollars per minute for the experience. So you can use that to measure how great an experience you in fact are, are staging because money yeah. is that key measure of the experience. Yeah, look, I, I, I love that piece of work. I think that's a, it's a bit of a changer in terms of how organizations start to think about experiences more critically beyond something that's almost a bit ethereal or fluffy on their marketing program yeah. or what they, you know, want to purport to be or who they want to be or how they want to, you know, present a brand to market, that it's actually almost more, well, it's more economic at its root and at its heart. I'm, I know that there'll be a bunch of folk that are going, this is great. Tell me where this is happening. How are people using it? What are the stories? And you've already given um, the case story. And yep. I know you could probably do this for days um, and I almost want to let you because it'll be fun. Um, <laughs> but, but in the interest of people getting back to uh, doing other things and they're not listening to, to this, uh, 
Give me your, your top three. What's your favorite stories? What are some of the interesting stories you've seen around? Well, that's, that's a great question. I'll, um, I'll start with because, you know, if many of your listeners are, are not high tech, uh, but low tech uh, and not big businesses, I'll get the question, well, this applies to big businesses and so forth. And I often say, well, you know, Starbucks was once a really small business. <laughs> it was yeah. a manufacturer and then they turned it into an experienced stager. Um, but I'll start with one uh, that is it's part of a very small chain of hotels. It's, it's my favorite boutique hotel in the world in Manhattan called the Library Hotel. And the Library Hotel uh, is, is boutique. I said it's 10 floors and six rooms in every floor. The theme okay. of it is a little bit more subtle than its name. Right? Every great experience should have a theme. That's what makes it cohesive when I talked about cohesive experiences. But the theme is um, Dewey Decimal System. You know, the, the, the system for categorization of, of library books. And knowing that, you know, when you go into the doors, you go to registration, guess what you see? Well, you, you see a card catalog, of course. And there's bookmarks lying around in that. And then as you get your room, um, in fact, you see that the architecture of it, the theming architecture is based off the Dewey Decimal System. There are, you know, again, 10 floors, and each of them is a different classification, the Dewey Decimal System. There's a math and science floor. There's a literature floor and an art fo uh, floor and uh, so on and so forth. And then every room is a different subclassification. And when you go to your room, it's filled with books and with art objects uh, from that particular classification. And so if you love books, like, like I love books, as you can see here, then <laughs> it's a, just a wonderful place to be. And they keep adding on to it and doing things. You know, I came back one time and they painted the stairwells, like you're, you're in a library and looking out onto, uh, you know, onto the, uh, the meadows and, and that sort of thing. The right. little key packet that you get, right? In most places you throw those away once you know what your room number is. Here it becomes cherished memorability because it's actually a, a tiny little book of sayings about libraries, right? That's your, and so just all these wonderful little elements. Clever, clever. Right, so now I'll go completely high tech. My favorite example of mass customizing goods and services in order to create a great experience is a Carnival Corporation, the cruise company. And what Carnival has done is they, they've uh, uh, created an IoT device called the Ocean Medallion. And I've got one here. You know, it's about the size of a large coin. It uh, communicates with the ship in three different ways. And it allows them to know exactly who you are, where you are, and to learn your preferences and remember them over time. So that they can, they call it the guest genome, where they learn about you, what you like to do, what experiences you like to, to spend time in, what you say, as well as recognizing, you know, experiences are time well spent. So if you spend more time than experience than most other people, the chances are you like that experience better. So we can offer things like that. They create a mass customized personal guest itinerary uh, for your cruise experience, which, and the second time you go, it gets even better, the third time better than that. They can even remember things like, when you're on the pool deck with your kids, your favorite drink is an iced tea with no lemon. When you're in the bar with your buddies, it's a mojito. And when you're in the restaurant with your spouse, it's a glass of Shiraz. <laughs> I understand the digital context of, of, of what I yeah. and And they, they started with one ship on the Princess Cruise Lines and then three, five, six. Now they're working on their uh, seventh ship, I believe it is, uh, there. And, and then they're going to start to move from brand to brand to brand until they get all 100 of their ships covered with this. And then continually to, to use machine learning to get it better, to continually to add new offerings on top of it. Because for the first time, we know who our customers are. Yeah. Right? So I yeah. think that's a wonderful example. Yeah. And, and so I think you asked for three. I'll give you one more. One of the things we didn't talk about, I alluded to it, is that because time is so important, it's time well spent. In the experience county, what you really should be doing is charging admission for your experience. Right, that economically what turns it from a service into experience is when you stop charging for activities and start charging for your customer's time. It was probably one of the most controversial things we said in the original book. We said that retailers and restaurateurs mm. and manufacturers and all these companies would charge admission in the future, and that's exactly what happened. There's scores, hundreds of companies now that are doing it. My favorite example is again a small little uh, one-place company, uh, a shoe, uh, or excuse me, a clothing store actually out in San Francisco called Wingtip. And the founder of the store, co-founder, uh, Ami Arad, uh, was designing his store and he um, uh, read our book, among others that he was using to help him out. And he got to the place in chapter three where we asked, what would you do differently if you charged a mission? And he said, well, 
I'm a clothing store. I can't charge a wrist. You can't, if people wouldn't come, I wouldn't be able to sell them clothing. Why would you do that? But it gnawed at him, right? And he kept thinking about it. And finally, he hit upon it. What he could do is he could have the store, but then he could also create the wingtip club. And the wingtip club could be a membership feed offering when you're paying per month. So he, he um, prototyped it out in a really small store. He figured out that it worked. And then he, he leased out this um, uh, floors in the old Bank of Italy building in San Francisco across from the Transamerica building, the big triangle one. Right. And the, the, the first floor in the basement where they had the old vault is the wingtip store. And then the top two floors are the wingtip club. And there he then charges, they have you know, three different levels of, of membership tiers. Um, but uh, the most basic level or the, the, the most common level is a $3,000 initiation fee and then $200 per month to belong to the club. And it's a big success, right? It's a wonderful place. It's vibrant. They have all these different experiences. They layer on top of it event after event. I learned at the club how to saber a champagne bottle. You know, what a, what a wonderful <laughs> experience that was. And, uh, and so you, you go to the store, you learn about the club. Chances are you, you go up, you become a member. You go to the club, you might want to buy more from the store. You sell more that way. And the synergy is really great. Yeah. And it all came down back to him asking, what would we do differently if we charged admission? That's a great story because it's, it's, it's easy to, to find examples out of the entertainment space, perhaps, or you think about a great bar that always has good bands and you're happy to pay like a cover charge to get in so that you can go buy drinks at the bar, which is where they make their real money, right? right. So <laughs> the notion's not new, but the application in a business like that or, or other businesses that you would never think about it, maybe historically, you know, that, that's really spinning the dime a little bit. Right, exactly. And, and, and like I said, they're man, man, think of all the manufacturers that charge admission. The Heineken experience in Amsterdam, the right. uh, Volkswagen's Autostadt in Wolfsburg, Germany, the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta. Uh, uh, six weeks ago, I was in Dublin and went to the Guinness Storehouse. Uh, wow. pay, it's, a, it's a 25 euro admission fee you know, for an hour and a half uh, production, which is around that 40 cents uh, per minute. Uh, but you can buy Guinness, you, you, you get some uh, free as part of your experience. Uh, you can buy all this memorabilia. You can go to the restaurant, go to the bar. You know, if you once you start adding the F and B and the memorabilia in there, it even becomes a much greater um, um, uh, 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 expenditure per minute. But it's all predicated on the experience that you design for your guests. Joe, this has been fan fantastic. Before I let you go. What, I, what I've decided to do, and I'm really privileged to have a really strong lineup of interna international guests that will be on the show. They're all accomplished and wise uh, people, but they're also just great human beings that are generous with their time. And I, I wanted just to give the opportunity, if you were leaving any advice from the, for the folk there today, and it literally can be anything, life, personal, career advice, ex you know, experience economics, whatever you like, what, what, would, what would you like to leave? listeners today well i'll i'll um i'll uh, i'll combine or intersect the personal and the business okay. right which is to think about purpose and i talked about theme as an organizing principle it's it i actually have this model of like four or five different levels of purpose and that begins with the acting intention around theater goes to your theme your organizing principle but above that is the meaningful purpose of the company and, and every company needs to have a meaningful purpose that aligns what they do, that allows people to decide um, um, and know what it is that they're supposed to do without having to be, always be told all the time because they align with a purpose. And so you need to have a personal purpose. You need to think about what your personal purpose is and make sure then that the company you're working for aligns with that purpose, that the two you know, purposes, and not that they're exactly identically the same with that. That's not going to happen. Um, very much. But, and I'll, and I'll give you an example. What I say now, and I, I went through this exercise myself four or five years ago and thinking about this, is that my purpose as an individual person, then, and then our, you know, given our three-person partnership, it you know, becomes basically the same thing for me. But right. my purpose is to figure out what's going on in the world of business and then develop frameworks that first describe what's happening and then prescribe what companies can do about it. 
right? And the, and the shorthand version of that that my partner, uh, Jim Gilmore and I have used for many years is frameworks are us, right? That's the purpose, frameworks are us. And so think about what is your purpose in life and, and how you can then use that to, to align who you work for, what you do in a way that allows you to achieve that purpose in life while simultaneously achieving a business purpose for whatever company you work with or that you start. Yeah, fantastic. And, and, and again, very personal in, in nature. And I think that, that describes your work uh, as a, in a nutshell. So again, thank you very much. I think you've well, nailed the brief, Joe. You've, you've nailed the brief and you have for a long, long time, not just today. I, I want to thank you for your contribution um, to business over a long time, but on a personal note again, um, for the value contribution you've made to my own work as well. I, I really appreciate it. And on yeah, that I'm note, to blush over here. <laughs> well, before, before, before you blush too much, I can edit that out. I'll put a nice, okay, okay, I'll good, give you good. a nice tan. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Look, Joe, it's been insightful and a real pleasure. And, uh, and thank you for headlining the premiere of Evolve. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate it. And I enjoyed our, our conversation. You've been listening to Evolve with Aaron Spinley. To ensure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe on YouTube or on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for hanging out. Until next time.